0: Tell everyone where we went this weekend, Matt.
1: We were up in New York City. We uh, took a little trip to the Met Museum in between seeing a couple of shows being put on by some folks we know from the National Puppetry Conference.
0: Yeah, I have so many puppeteer friends. That's not a sentence that most people can say (laughs) truthfully but a lot of my friends are involved in really cool theater projects that have puppets involved and uh, one of them is Anna Wong who is developing a musical about her life with her elderly parents and her children and taking care of them all at once and uh, another is my wonderful friend Yael Rasuli, who does an amazing one woman puppet show called Paper Cut and it's called that because most of the puppets are in fact cut out pieces of paper. It is incredible and if you ever get the chance to see this show you should totally see it. It's like won a ton of awards but that doesn't mean anything. It's just amazing one of those shows was at lunchtime and one was after dinner and in between
1: we walked 50 blocks during the saint patrick's day parade Mm -hmm. uh, for better for worse yeah
0: surrounded by people in glittery green things (laughs) drunk and screaming about being irish
1: it was it was at least a nice enough day out and we cut through central park we got there exhausted thinking that maybe it was cheaper than it was it's not Um, (laughs) we're like okay we've got maybe an hour we
0: have an hour tops to look at what we want to look at and we went there for a very specific reason we've been to the Met before but we had not been since buying our building and discovering
1: history weirdos (laughs) yeah in
0: in a very specific niche way and uh, for those of you who don't know the Met is full of not just art and sculptures and paintings, but also ceramics and historical ceramics, uh, particularly from the early colonial American period.
1: Yeah, truth be told, this is stuff that uh, in past museum visits throughout most of my life, I just kind of skipped through. I had zero if not negative interest in the uh, decorative arts uh, particularly from around uh the colonial american period in the past it was just not something i really cared for
0: sure i think it's like familiarity breeds contempt if you've like if you've been forced to study a lot about colonial america in school i don't know what
1: no i think more when you think when when i think we're going to a museum i'm thinking about paintings and sure. like the classics and, yeah. and the more like fine arts things that um frankly are more pop culture maybe honestly
0: i guess i was like i would be interested in ancient pots Potts oh yeah from yeah ancient egypt or whatever and then when it came to pots from 250 years ago it's like eh whatever that doesn't seem interesting right
1: right like right now <laughs> i'm super stoked about these wine bottles that are like terrible little wine bottles made in the late 1700s Um, (laughs) because I own them yeah (laughs) and meanwhile at the Met I'm sure we walked clear past these things that were you know blown in the first century AD in Rome that have like signatures on them like amazing glassware Right. Uh, and I was just like, all right, take me to the colonial American stuff. Right,
0: right. No, screw that stuff that's like 3,000 years old. I'm really interested in the stuff that's less than 300 years old. But, but that's who we've become we've gone from people who absolutely don't care about this stuff to people who are the most insufferable visitors to a museum who beeline for something and then stand around talking about it and cracking jokes about how ours are better and uh (laughs) and acting like um like we're experts which um i guess compared to who we were before we're experts but uh there are definitely people who know a lot more than we do <laughs> yes
1: we're at best google experts we're, we're <laughs> friends with experts
0: yeah yeah yes
1: we, we, we know very good folks in, in the likes of uh, Debbie Miller and Rob Hunter right who, who do the real work
0: uh, we haven't introduced Debbie yet but we will in, an, in a future episode trust yeah. us okay <laughs> so that was super fun um, going to that museum because we saw two pieces of Bonin and Morris pottery that we had not seen before or or at the very least had just walked past before and not <laughs> paid any attention to <laughs> uh, and we'll post pictures of those uh, they're like really nice pieces of Bonnet and Morris not like the uh, the sort of more working class Bonnet and Morris that we found in our privy uh, we'll post pictures of those on social media so you can see what they looked like but also I was really interested in seeing what else the Met had on offer from this period And I was delighted to see on their website that a lot of the early American objects were housed in a gallery called 774. So we spent... Like 45 minutes trying to find Gallery 774 because kind of stupidly we didn't grab a map at the door. And I figured, oh, no worries, we'll just ask the guides, the the guards and whatever. We'll just ask them when we get to the wing.
1: That turned out to be a roll of the dice that we uh, failed our saving throw on. Because when we did ask somebody, she actually approached us and asked if we needed help finding something and she had no idea where to point us
0: yeah we were like where's gallery 774 and it
1: was like we weren't speaking her language (laughs) and i was like do you see the number next to this door that's the gallery gallery number number.
0: and she's like oh um well can you tell me what object you're looking for and we're like no we're not looking for a specific object we're looking for like a bunch of (sighs) okay we'll we'll just wonder until we find it so it took a long time to find this gallery (laughs) but then when we finally did it is now officially I think my favorite room at the Met it is not really well displayed like most of the galleries in the Met are and very sort of spaced out and prettily displayed it's basically like If you go to the library and you go into the stacks and you've got these sort of narrow pathways between bookshelves, it's like that. But instead of bookshelves, they are glass cabinets. And on either side, they're just packed with various objects, um, kind of organized according to theme, but also a little bit haphazardly displayed on either side.
1: Yeah, it's like warehouse shelving but made out of glass
0: It reminded me of the Egyptian Museum when we were in Cairo a few years ago because <laughs> Except,
1: climate control. Except
0: climate controlled Except climate controlled And you weren't allowed
1: to touch anything <laughs> uh, well, And it was enforced There are signs up in English and French in that Egyptian Antiquities Museum That said, please don't touch And they were all rubbed off by touching
0: Right, it. everyone was touching everything It was kind of distressing Anyway, I guess we should get on with the story that we're telling, right?
1: Yeah, I think a good way to segue into that is to talk about one of the things that we originally went to the Met to go see, something we found when we were doing research on Daniel Williams, uh, who we spoke about in the last episode, which if you haven't heard, then you're listening out of order and you need to go start at episode one and come back to this later. Right. There is a miniature, a small painting Of the son, one of the sons of Daniel Williams, one Enion Williams. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not just any miniature, but it's painted by... Charles Wilson Peel. Yeah.
0: If you have ever seen a painting of any of the founding fathers or mothers of America, it's like a 50-50 chance that it's a Peel painting. And you get to see Enion Williams' face Oh. Post a link to a picture of it But I fed his face Through the Pop Sugar twinning Website so that I could Yeah so I could tell you which Celebrities he looks the most like And uh, he has a 73% Match with Frankie Muniz from Malcolm in the Middle And also a 30% match with Kurt Metzger, who's a very unsavory comic that nobody likes. And a 28% match with Jeff Bezos. So if you can imagine a cross between Frankie Muniz, Kurt Metzger, and Jeff Bezos, but in a um, like a powdered wig, like a Mozart wig, and Revolutionary War uniform, then you have... Pictured young Enyon Williams, the son of Daniel Williams.
1: So we were hoping to go to see the painting of the son of the guy who owned our building when we found all this stuff, but it turns out uh, that has been cycled out of display. Yeah. There's, uh, We found where it probably was. Right.
0: There's like a whole cabinet of miniature paintings, many of them by uh, Charles Wilson Peel. But there was not the one of Enion. And I know it used to be on display at the Met, so they must have taken it down at some point. I don't know. For yeah. cleaning, restoration, work, whatever, just to piss us off because <laughs> they knew we were coming.
1: This is the struggle of so many museums, is what you see on the floor is such a small fraction of their collections that, uh, you know, a, a good museum tries to cycle things in and out. So yeah, but that you know everything... what? There was
0: space in that cabinet, Matt. There, there was, was a l- lot of space. There was a ton of space in that cabinet. They could have definitely put more than just the onion painting.
1: They are called miniatures.
0: Yeah, and and there was a lot of space. Look, anyway, okay. <laughs> Look, I'm not going to complain about it. We had a lovely walk, and we saw some lovely stuff, and uh, we were late to dinner because of we the walk. We had
1: 50 w- blocks to walk back because it turns out when when you're late getting back and there's a parade for st patrick's day right along the street you're walking along it's really hard to get a taxi or a ride share or a bus or anything <laughs> go us
0: uh anyway we should um we should talk about who is enion williams and why are we talking about him today
1: take a seat you're in the bog house
0: We left off with Daniel Williams purchasing our property in 1770, correct?
1: Yeah, the sheriff's sale came up. Uh, good old Joe Redman uh, <laughs> let his buddy know that uh, there was a, a sweet property on the Delaware waterfront.
0: That's our conjecture. We don't yeah. know that that was actually the <laughs> sequence of events. But we assume that Joe Redman at least said hi to Daniel at the auction. But the next part of the story is... Not strictly about our property, but kind of about what Daniel Williams and his family were doing while they owned our property. They owned our property until 1783. So we've got this period between 1770 and 1783, and gosh, it seems like some shit went down in Philadelphia during those years.
1: That would be the Revolutionary War, which uh, kicked off in 1775 and really didn't peter out until 1783.
0: I think in Amer- in Australia we know it as the American War of Independence. Is that
1: it's the same thing?
0: It's right. Okay, we're uh, not just like retitling things like well, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone or whatever.
1: <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you are retitling things. It's like uh, the the Civil War versus the War of Northern Aggression. <laughs> um, right, and whereas sure. I think from the Australian point of view, we were like the the bully older brother who like kicked england out instead of kind of being like can we just can we just be a country (laughs) is that cool
0: uh it's so funny because australia prides itself on not having started with a war that's like our side eye at america we didn't do a whole bunch of violence we didn't have to kill anyone to become a country we just like said let's be a country and then did it (laughs) (laughs) whatever.
1: And we're like, yeah, that only happened because they know what happens if you don't say yes now.
0: (laughs) It could be, could be. (laughs) We have to um, backtrack a little bit about this war business because Daniel Williams and his family and actually a ton of people in Philadelphia, obviously, were Quakers. This is why we talked at length about Quakers and William Penn's establishment of Pennsylvania as a Quaker colony in the 1680s. Quakerism and fighting in a war are kind of diametrically opposed ideas.
1: (laughs) One of the things that underlies the Society of Friends is strict pacifism.
0: Right. No violence. By this point in Quakerism, uh, and we'll talk about this a little more in a second, the idea was that even resistance is immoral. So you should rather allow yourself to be beaten, bloodied, murdered, whatever than fight back and perpetrate violence against those who are attacking you. And remember, again, um, for some people this might seem completely irrational and insane almost, but remember that this philosophy was developed in the situation in England where things were just getting polarized and people were fighting back and then that was creating more resentment and then horrific civil war for years and years and years.
1: Yeah, so in the lead-up to the Revolutionary War, the measures the Quakers supported as a means of resolving trade-based conflicts, at least, between Britain and America, were diplomatic solutions, such as boycotts. One of the most important of these was the resolution of non-importation made by the citizens of Philadelphia. That's actually... The title of this particular boycott it's a bit of a, a mouthful <laughs>
0: they weren't really into like snappy acronyms no. like you know the patriot act or whatever <laughs> at that time
1: yeah it's it's the Ronima <laughs> uh, it
0: good good name i'm
1: glad they don't backronym like they do now that's i know one of the things i just i hate it ugh. Uh,
0: anyway um <laughs> it
1: was created in response to the infamous stamp act
0: Oh, wow, I learned about this in Australia, the Stamp Act. Yeah. Yeah, when we were studying the Revolutionary War in Modern History class, we learned about this, and this is, uh, the, for those of you who don't remember or don't know or had no course to study it, the Stamp Act was when the British were demanding that Americans pay extra tariffs on the goods that were imported into America from Britain, but also at the same time they were forbidding the colonists from creating their own goods
1: ...to compete with the British goods. Well, wouldn't you believe it? Our friend and merchant Daniel Williams was one of 373 Philadelphian merchants... Uh, who on October 25th, 1765, signed the resolution of non-importation made by the citizens of Philadelphia.
0: So basically he's saying we are going to boycott all British goods and then you'll be fucked and you'll repeal those
1: taxes. Well, as it turned out, that resolution helped bring about the repeal of the Stamp Act. Hooray! So go Quakers! Yeah! Um, but of course, Britain persisted in trying to bring those uppity colonials to economic heel. And that peace was not to last. Mm.
0: At this point, the Brits started passing some acts known as the Townsend Acts, named after noted asshole Townsend. And these acts were essentially the same idea as the Stamp Acts. They were just, you know, new iterations of it. And the colonies once again started launching protests. The most strenuous of those protests were actually coming from Boston. The Philadelphia merchants sent some petitions, but they didn't have another organized boycott like the resolution of non-importation of the citizens of Philadelphia. (laughs) So actually, during this period, Daniel Williams, who you might remember from the last episode, was partnered with a guy called Samuel Eldridge. They opened their textile shop in 1768. So, you know, they probably were not as interested in boycotting imported goods because their textile shop sold a bunch of imported goods. The textile shop, however, only lasted for three years. So I kind of feel like one of the reasons why it didn't last longer than three years might have been because it was sort of politically inexpedient to be selling imported textiles in your shop in philadelphia yeah,
1: it seems like uh, a potential good opportunity but uh, a little bit risky so yeah by 1771 eldridge split town mm-hmm. he was well he didn't split town yeah. he just
0: uh i don't know what he did i didn't follow eldridge i don't know i yeah
1: Yeah, we we, believe it or not, we do try to stay on track here.
0: (laughs) There's one or two tangents I haven't chased down, and maybe I'll do that at a future date when I'm procrastinating another huge project. But uh, today is not that day. So after Williams and Eldridge split up, Williams decided that he wanted to keep it all in the family. So he relaunched his Front Street store as Williams and Sons. And uh, those two sons, incidentally, I'll get to them in a moment, uh, but were his two oldest sons, Edward and Enyon, to ease, it's easy to remember. And for the next couple of years, they sold pretty much the same kinds of things as were sold in Williams and Eldridge, except that in all of the advertisements or advertisements depending on your accent, that Williams & Sons placed in newspapers from 1771 through 1774. It says that they're importing things. It lists imported things from East India, Europe, Russia, and Ireland, but nothing from England or Britain. Uh, They have Scotch thread as well, but I'm not sure if Scotland maybe scotland gets a pass because it's not england you know i mean there is a huge scotch independence thing as well so you know <laughs> that's that's a
1: whole other tangent <laughs> right
0: right right um let's talk about the sons from williams and sons because we actually have a surprising amount of information about at least one of these sons first of all i need to talk about this again because i know i mentioned this in the first episode about daniel williams but this just blows my mind, and it's something that I think it's very difficult for modern audiences to imagine. I'm going to read out a list of all of Jane Williams's births. This is Daniel Williams's wife, right? So they got married in 1746, and They get right to it, because in 1747, they have their first child, Mary Williams, named after Jane's grandmother. And then the next year, they have twins, which is awesome, Jane and Daniel. That's kind of weird, because they named the twins after themselves. That's weird.
1: (laughs) I I know a family like that.
0: Okay, um... (laughs) So but Mary, then what happens Ma- right, Mary Jane and Daniel these three bouncing babies and then in 1749 all three of them die so Mary is two and Jane and Daniel are one and uh, they all die Pretty much all at once, like within a couple of months of each other. So they
1: figure this is late 18th century. They don't even know what vaccines are. Mm -hmm. They could have just like caught the flu. They could have, yeah. And It it just wiped out the family.
0: Totally, totally could have been anything. We don't have a record of exactly why they died, but my God, there were a lot of things for babies to die of. There's a year gap after the deaths before they have their first child that survives into adulthood. This is Edward Williams, their oldest son. He was born in 1750 and he would live to be 60 years old, which is pretty good. That's a good run. Yeah. Then we have two years after that. So they're sort of spacing their children out a little more now. Two years after that, we have Enion Williams. That's E-N-N-I-O-N. It's a... We did some research on this. It's It's a traditional Welsh name. So Enion Williams is a really welsh combination he was born in 1752 and he was the longest lived of the williams children he actually made it to 78 years old which is fabulous two years after that sarah williams 1754 we don't have a death date which i think means she died pretty much right away 1756 two years after that george williams died the same year a year after that mary williams note mary we've already heard of mary their first child was named mary and uh, that was exactly 10 years before this mary she is their eighth child in 10 years their eighth birth in 10 years so they try again with the name mary 1757 she makes it to 1758 and then she dies In 1758, they have another child, though, and it's a daughter, Deborah Williams. She also makes it all the way to adulthood. Yay! Hooray! A surviving girl! (laughs) But she doesn't live for that long. She makes it to age 44.
1: Right, so by that count, if I were Deborah, I'd have, like, five more years left.
0: Yeah. They keep trying, though. So at this point, they have three living children. In 1760... Two years after giving birth to Deborah, there's another baby, Hannah. Oh, it's about time we got to a Hannah because every Quaker family has to have a Hannah. Unfortunately, Hannah dies the next year, 1761. In 1762, another birth, this time a boy, Joseph Williams. And the year after that, another Daniel Williams. You remember one of the twins was a Daniel. Joseph and Daniel, two little baby boys In 1765, they both die. In 1764, Sarah Williams, another Sarah, 10 years after the first Sarah. Sarah makes it to adulthood. Woohoo! This is amazing. She's actually the last of Daniel Williams's children to pass away in 1832. I can't do that math in my head because I've become stupid in my old age. What's 1832 minus 1764,
1: Matt? Uh, in my head, that comes out to 68.
0: <laughs> you didn't do that in your head.
1: <laughs> Technically, my eyes processed what was on the screen. <laughs>
0: what it's wrong i used to be really good at math <laughs> i swear okay i'm
1: focusing really hard on narrating uh, not not mathing
0: okay it's two different gears in the brain okay uh and also why am i laughing this is a fucking terrible story then in 1766 samuel williams he makes it to age three and then their final child in 1770 daniel williams He would have been alive when Williams and Sons was launched in 1771, but he was a baby. I assume he wasn't helping out in the shop. We'll actually talk a little bit more about Daniel Williams in the next episode, the surviving Daniel Williams, because this is the third time they've tried for a Daniel junior. And he does actually make it to adulthood. Uh, But we'll talk about that later. So anyway, I read this list and (laughs)
1: That that was pretty intense. It's, I I, I mean,
0: I'm laughing because it's because I can't process this any other way. It seems so absurd to have 10 children die by age three by the time you get to 1769. As I think I said in the last episode, you know, most people if they have one child un- sadly pass away in childhood, it is so devastating. And we as a society view that as something that is devastating enough that it's you're not expected to continue with your life without grieving first. But Daniel Williams, while this is going on, is not only going on with his life but he's launching new businesses yeah, i mean he's growing
1: his his empire
0: right uh, and
1: he's he's dealing with partners coming and going he's buying real estate he's just carrying on because at this point he's been through so many of these
0: right and so it may, it raises this question in my head of whether everyone in the 1700s cuz this is not an uncommon story this is not like oh no freak family loses all their children like families were losing children left right and center And it makes me think, was everyone walking around with massive PTSD in the 1700s because their children are dying? Another possibility is that people really didn't bond with their children when they were young to protect themselves. And I think there's something to that.
1: I mean, if you look at the faces of children in paintings at the time, (laughs) they're they're totally weirded out.
0: (laughs) Well, and also there's like the tradition of, you know, wet nurses Mm -hmm, and... mm -hmm you know this kind of removal especially if you're in the upper classes the removal of children from their parents they didn't experience the close bonding that we sort of think of as normal now with parents and children um and i think you know that that might have been a kind of way of protecting yourself Mm -hmm. from the inevitable grief of that child dying because it was so common it's just really it's just really unfathomable to me and i don't even have kids so I'm sure for those of you out there who do have kids or, you know, have gone through a child's sickness or a miscarriage or a child dying, it must be even more unfathomable to think about.
1: On a totally unrelated note, Edward and Enion, to give some scale of where we are in the grand timeline of things, are a little bit older than Mozart.
0: Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who was born in 1756. So, Edward and Enyan were born in 1750 and 1752. Actually, Mozart's sister, Nanel, was born in 1751. So, they're all kind of this they're age.
1: contemporary.
0: Yeah, which is, it's so, I don't know why that's really difficult for me to think about. Because I study music history and American revolutionary history in two completely different contexts and it's really hard for me to imagine them in the, exactly the same world but it was
1: uh let's get back to the the timeline associated with uh, why we're we're talking about all this stuff okay war officially broke out in april 1775 and at that time edward and Enyan were 25 and 23
0: prime fighting age yeah, right
1: ready to go looking to punch some heads um <laughs> They they enlisted in the Continental Army and began military training and exercises. But
0: wait, Matt, I thought that Quakers weren't cool with people fighting in wars or being in a military. Well,
1: much as it is today, Philadelphia was a small town back then, and the Arch Street Quakers found out during the Arch Street Quakers monthly meeting. They took steps to address this particular issue. Uh, They sent several friends to, quote, labor further to convince them of the inconsistency of their conduct with our religious professions and principles.
0: Oh, that sounds...
1: Serious business. Yeah.
0: Needless to say, this didn't really work, especially (laughs) with these sort of hot-headed, privileged young men who had eaten a lot of lead in their childhood and infancy
1: and were really just... Maybe rebelling against Dad a little bit.
0: Maybe, except I think Dad might have been very supportive of it as well.
1: That's true. Like, That's true. I
0: don't think that Dad was sort of, you know, wanting to disown them for joining the army. I think he probably would have been interested in the American Revolutionary cause.
1: In he had his own Quaker issues. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, anyway, Enyan was already off and away. And we know that because he's actually one of the few Revolutionary War soldiers that kept a journal that has survived to this day. This
0: is amazing that we have not one... But two journals from the 1700s of people associated with this property. I mean, the chances of that are so slim. Yeah, it's, it's
1: ridiculous. It's
0: kind of incredible. So we talked a couple of episodes about Benjamin Mifflin's journal as he headed down the Delaware and complained about everything along the way. <laughs> and now we have not Daniel Williams's journal, but his son's journal. And it's actually, it really tells you a lot about what it was like to be a Revolutionary War officer.
1: Yeah, you have all these sort of generic ideas about what it was like being in the war, but this guy is just writing down his day-to-day adventures, or boring parts, even.
0: Right, and he's writing down lists of the people he meets, and you can kind of, Glean his priorities through what he chooses to write down. Mm -hmm. We're going to read you some of Mr. Enyon Williams' age 23's journal as he travels up to Boston in October of 1775. This is after the Battle of Bunker Hill, which we're not going to go into, but you can totally look at the wiki page if you want to find out what happened there. That had happened a little earlier, a couple of months earlier. The British were occupying that part of Boston. The British had taken Bunker Hill, but the American Revolutionary soldiers were looking to fight back or at least hold their ground against the British in Boston. And Enyon went up that way to lend his support and hopefully fight and maybe kill some Brits. On October the fourth, seventeen seventy-five, he sets off from Philadelphia, and his older brother Edward accompanied him all the way to Trenton, New Jersey. They're riding horses, and it takes a really long time to get anywhere when you're riding a horse north to Boston from Philadelphia. So, <laughs> <laughs> whereas now you can kind of drive there in one day. This is not the case for Enyan. The first a day, of hours. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> right. It's crazy. So, like the first day, he goes to Trenton. And uh, then he writes in his journal.
1: I took leave of my dear brother as if it was the last time we should meet again in this world. It's very dramatic. (laughs) Um, I mean, it was a crazy time. At the same time, I requested him to respect a certain young lady as the particular object of his brother's attention and to my parents' brothers and sisters.
0: Oh, so he's got a girlfriend in Philly that he's leaving behind.
1: The we- wartime girl.
0: Yeah, he doesn't name her. he I guess it's a secret. <gasps> Maybe it was a scandal. Mm. Maybe she was married. I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, uh, anyway, eight days later, eight full days of travel later, Enion arrives in Massachusetts. It says he arrives safe this evening at Worcester, which he spells W-O-O-S-T-E-R. <laughs> That's okay. He's just hooked on phonics, right?
1: I, I don't imagine they had big green highway signs at that point.
0: Probably not. He describes Worcester as a small town rendered by the trade of the several stores quite lively. And also uh, on this day, he writes a very funny recollection of what the people in Connecticut are like, which I really enjoy. <laughs> I have a lot of friends in Connecticut now because the puppetry conference is in <laughs> Connecticut. So I hope that they're listening and and they will enjoy this description of Connecticut people. The Connecticut men are lusty and stout in general, and seem determined to turn out on any alarm to support their liberties. The people, I believe, are very kind and hospitable, and no doubt very happy in Connecticut, as each one has a garden and orchard with a frame house. The peasants are inquisitive yet kind. An instance, the other day, as Mr. Henry and myself were passing some sour apples that hung over the road, the good farmer's wife, at a distance, called out to us that there were some better apples and directly sent her little child with its apron full of very good fruit and seemed happy in having this opportunity of kindness. I think that's pretty cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Connecticut peasants, they'll give you the sweetest apples. <laughs> that should be the uh, the slogan on the State license. State motto. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Connecticut peasants will give you the sweetest apples. <laughs> I was saying, although it's interesting to me that he refers to them as peasants and yeah. uh, this is a um, little
1: bit of a class indicator there
0: yeah because Enyon williams was rich and he was from a rich family yeah, like we no doubt. already established daniel williams had like fucking tons of money and was hobnobbing with the you know, the equivalent of the one percenters in Philadelphia. The f- All the famous people uh, that you think of when you think of founding fathers in Philadelphia.
1: Still happy to take free tasty apples from the, quote, peasants. From the
0: inquisitive <laughs> peasants, yeah. <laughs> uh, when Enyon reached Connecticut, he met up with his friend... Jonathan Mifflin. A Mifflin. A Mifflin. Oh, my God. This is like all the owners... It's like all
1: rich people hang out.
0: Yeah. Jonathan Mifflin was the son of Major General Thomas Mifflin, the one that Mifflin County is named after, and who was the second cousin of Benjamin Mifflin, who was the guy who owned our property from 1745 to 1760. So that means that Jonathan Mifflin is Benjamin Mifflin's second cousin once removed. So, Enion Williams and Jonathan Mifflin knew each other because they were both extremely rich Quaker family-connected. And when Enyon arrived in Boston with Jonathan Mifflin, son of Thomas Mifflin, he was invited to stay in Major Thomas Mifflin's quarters. And he wrote often of his interactions with Major and Mrs. Mifflin. So, just hobnobbing with the most important people in town at that point. Oh, except for on the 15th of October, he met George Washington for the first time.
1: And the most important people in town are just one level you get to.
0: Right. And then you meet like the most important person in the entire fucking colony at this point. (laughs) Um, And then there's this adorable little conversation, which he reports in his journal
1: Sunday the 15th, we had the honor of being introduced by Colonel Reed to His Excellency General Washington, who thinks it very extraordinary that as the colonies voted the opposition general, that some of the provinces should supply the king's ships with provisions when here there is war in its full force and all seizures made that possible can be.
0: (laughs) So he's saying that he George Washington is pissed that colonies uh, supplying the British when he thought those colonies were supposed to be fucking revolutionary. So he's having political conversations with George Washington, this 23-year-old kid who rode up from Philadelphia to fight. I mean, that's, you know, he seems like slightly starstruck by this interaction. But then in the next sentence, he says,
1: Accepted of an invitation, from Major Mifflin, to dine at Jamaica in Miss Tyler's. Jamaica Plain being uh, somewhere, I think, south of Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, and
0: Miss Tyler's being some nice hostess yeah. who was providing food. Okay.
1: At Jamaica, I was introduced to Miss Broadstreet. One word. But, um,
0: <laughs> and then he doesn't say anything more about that. He just wanted to, like, write down, I met a girl. <laughs> <yeah. laughs> it's just like, I need to write down the name of the girl I just who was met. That? Who okay. did I talk
1: to? Miss Broad Street, I think her name was. Okay, great. He actually, yeah, this is just a a whole bunch of people he met with. He's just writing down names uh, of people that he's met. Hopefully
0: Um. important people. It's so funny to me because, okay, we're right now in the middle of this college scandal where rich people are paying their uh, for their kids to get accepted to colleges where they shouldn't really be. And it's like the rich have these networks of other rich people that they all meet and befriend. And it's kind of like, you know, this is a very old idea. Do we think that Enion Williams would have been accepted into this highfalutin officer's party and society if his dad hadn't been a super rich dude mm-hmm. you know was mm-hmm. uh, was any a better soldier than other poorer people no <laughs> this is very american <laughs> yeah.
1: and it, it's funny even though we have this impression of these folks as being like really ready to get into the fight the stuff he talks about when he's up around boston during this stalemate between the revolutionary forces and uh, the british forces Paint an interesting picture of what's going on up there. It's not all firing on each other all the same time. Uh, Anyway, to that point, the following day on Monday the 16th, he writes, Rode round by the Fort number 1 and along by the mouth of the Charles River. Uh, We walked down on the marsh within about a half a mile of the Man of War. Referring to a a big old ship on on the river that's full of guns. Mm -mm. But they were so sulky that we could not even tempt them to give us a shot.
0: Like, they want the ships to fire on them so that they can see some action.
1: This war is so boring. (laughs) Uh, We then rode around the lines in Prospect Hill, Uh, we dined at Major Mifflin's, and we're introduced to more people. Lots more people.
0: Then the next day, he goes to a lookout over Bunker Hill and that area called Powderhorn Hill... Uh, which he says commands the most beautiful view i ever beheld we see the evening camps on charlestown island the spot on which the battle was fought at the foot of bunker hill and see the straight line of breastworks thrown up by the brave general putnam Boston, the remains of the castle, the island, the ocean, etc. These are all things that he can see from his lookout there. I drank salt water out of the remains of the hull of the armed schooner burnt by General Putnam.
1: See, here he is being, like, badass by proxy.
0: Right, right. He wasn't like, I drank the there. water
1: out of the burned ship that yeah. our general burned down.
0: Yeah, fuck you, British. <laughs> 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 I went in your bombed out ship that sank um
1: (laughs) so that was cool
0: (laughs) then he says we were down at penny ferry and i walked down to our lowest sentry with colonel baldwin where we heard them here he means them he means the british talking very plain on bunker hill and see everyone that moves out of their tents and here on these points and in the meadow all around with almost 300 yards of bunker hill so he's saying that at the point of the century that's closest to the british he is astonished that he can hear the british soldiers conversations like he's that close to the occupied hill
1: fort right, the, the, he's, he's watching them moving about between the tents and hearing their conversations
0: right that's kind of cool <laughs> okay but then he turns into a little bit of a cocky shit right because he says within almost 200 yards of Bunker Hill and some points nearer to the Man of War. Our people let their horses and cattle feed and mow the grass and make up the hay without any fear of the balls which they have often thrown from the cannon and muskets. We fear them not and laugh at their firing, which they, like dastards, will not permit a man except the sentries to run the least risk. And if their cattle or hay were as far from their ships and batteries as ours are, we would directly seize them in spite of their musketry. They are so amazingly terrified by by our riflemen that they will not stir beyond their lines
1: (laughs) tough guy enion
0: williams (laughs) i don't get why those british people like won't come and fight us it's so stupid
1: later that day uh, he continues that they supped at our lodgings at brown's where we heard whispering that an expedition was on foot Mrs. Mifflin informed me that a play was to be acted in Boston. A
0: play? Like in a theater?
1: (laughs) Theater of war. (laughs) Oh, Oh. I get it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Major Mifflin was gone to see the expedition. He's being very coy. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, Our company directly hastened to Prospect Hill Fort, where we could see flashes of the guns of our two batteries of about one mile from Boston. So they're up on this, uh, it's called Prospect Hill, because you can see everything from it. Sure. Uh, But they're about a mile away, uh, maybe a couple of miles. They know the guns from these ships were firing on Boston.
0: The the Uh, ships were a mile from Boston, firing it.
1: Right, right. It was was a good distance away. Mm -hmm. Uh, The intent of these 14 or 15 shot, we can't tell. Uh, However, the enemy did not return a single shot. Uh, And unfortunately for us, one of our cannon burst into pieces, Killed one man and wounded six others. It blew the cover off and started to plank. I don't really know what that means.
0: It's bad. It's, it's like it's bad, bad. Bad on a ship.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, because the the ship sunk uh, in about four feet of water. Hmm. So yeah, they they had a misfire. It blew up the boat.
0: Yeah. This, by the way, is like before Baron von Steuben came to America, and it sort of illustrates the American military, such as it was. Did not really understand what it was doing.
1: Right, they're just like, let's let's shoot at these guys. Right, the and Brits then, probably weren't firing back because they're like,
0: why are you shooting at us? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a waste of ammunition. I don't understand why you're doing this. That's pretty much the most action that Enion Williams sees on this particular tour. It's not like he actually fought; he just watched from a hill while the American soldiers blew themselves up, firing <laughs> cannons pointlessly at the British. And then a couple of days after this, he's basically just living like he's on vacation in Boston. He says,
1: "Friday the twentieth, breakfasted at Mister Connor's, dined at Cambridge." drank coffee with Mr. Mifflins, supped at Brown's, and joined in an Indian frolic, which to me has been the most unlucky accident since I've left home.
0: I think <laughs> that an Indian frolic is a giant drunken party. I, I, it's like a racist term, of course, for... like
1: Acting like savages. Yeah,
0: right? Like probably around a campfire or something, right? Maybe they danced and hooted and hollered or something and yeah so he was getting drunk like he was on spring fucking break in October and then after this 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 is like the start of a kind of vacation-y period for Onion because then he sort of leaves the immediate Boston area and starts sort of traveling to the small towns around one of the towns that he visited you've probably heard of it's called Salem I think some stuff happened there which uh, which involved which
1: which 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 which,
0: which. Uh, In that would be in the 1600s right
1: yeah that would have been in the late 1690s so
0: so we're like nearly 100 years away from that particular episode yeah and his description of Salem is actually kind of lovely. He says, There are many beautiful houses here, several delightful streets more resembling Philadelphia than any I've seen in New England.
1: Philadelphia that, Boston.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Philadelphia was the best city in America. <laughs> uh, but, like uh, It still is, actually. But, you know, back then it was definitely... Uh, it was
1: the prototype city of its day.
0: Yeah, for sure. He says, The ladies here... Gosh, Enyan, he's always interested <laughs> in the ladies The ladies here are handsome and genteelly dressed And the practice is for them to spend their leisure moments in their first story And they are so pleased to see gentlemen from the southward That the windows were filled with women, girls and children And we were entertained very highly by viewing the great variety of faces And their entertainment seemed equal to ours So that we were smiling, then laughing, then smiling and so on Ultimately for hours. Such is the custom amongst even the genteel young ladies, as well as others, that they will look at you with a pleasing countenance, and if your admiration excites a smile, they will answer it, and if you should speak, they will familiarly answer you. This behavior of ladies we knew were modest and virtuous appeared to us extraordinary and for a short time, very amusing. On Sunday evening, we walked the streets which were filled with girls and a greater number (laughs) of them than I have ever seen walking in Philadelphia.
1: (laughs) It's it's funny, Melissa and I were talking about this and it reminds us of having visited San Antonio, Texas. Yes. After living in Philly for a while. Yes. And just being so put off in a way like at just, weirded like,
0: out totally weirded out
1: at how friendly everyone was
0: right like <laughs> why is that man smiling at me does he want something from me is
1: that woman flirting with me yeah. or is this just how they are oh
0: shit that guy wants to sell me drugs for sure look at right, how no, he's looking just friendly. Right? no they're, they're just-, just saying hi <laughs>
1: walking through a neighborhood and strangers are waving and saying hello. And this is Enion's experience in Salem, Massachusetts.
0: Yeah, yeah, I call it like the fuck off urban vibe. You know, you you walk through the streets refusing to make eye contact with anybody and just going in a straight line with purpose because you don't want anyone to talk to you. If someone talks to you, it means like there's something wrong. Like,
1: And it's maybe a little Stepford Wives because this is Salem, Massachusetts where they were like killing off witch women <laughs> everything's right, happy like here everything's stuff. great
0: we're not gonna press you to death with stones or or, <laughs> or burn you at the stake no sir no. hang you i think they hung the women right mm. um so and it
1: was i mean it was in pretty stark contrast to the the quaker city of philadelphia right where it sounds like uh, as a woman you lived on the second floor <laughs> 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 you weren't allowed on the first floor <laughs> yeah.
0: to look out the window at the charming gentleman going by. And if you
1: looked out, you kept a straight face. Yes,
0: you didn't smile.
1: Like, if you look at the two known portraits that we have of, of Hannah. Hannah Callowhill, it's, it's very mm,
0: Yeah, it's mm, like a little... Smiling is not, you know... It's it a-
1: betrays bad virtue. <laughs>
0: I guess, you know, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's like a Puritan thing and it's a fashion thing, but also but boy, was
1: he happy to see all the smiling ladies?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so many girls. I've and I'm never sure seen they're virtuous. Right, right, because that's the other thing is I assume from what is implied between these lines that if you were walking down the street in Philadelphia and women were smiling at you, those women were 100% sex workers.
1: Totally prostitutes. Like,
0: definitely were, you know, looking to solicit something from you. So that's why they were so amused to see all of these apparently virtuous, genteel young ladies signaling to them in a way that they would expect a sex worker to signal to them.
1: I can't wait to visit Salem, Melissa.
0: I can't wait to visit Salem either, actually. Actually, I really do want to visit Salem one of these days. But uh, yeah, also because it's full of smiling women. (laughs) Uh, And one more story from Enyon's journal before we keep going, we get back to him. The story of a small town a little further north of Boston. This is Marblehead.
1: We passed on over a stony road to Marblehead, which is a dirty, disagreeable place. At present, they are here in great distress, as the town is built amongst rocks and stones where there is no land to cultivate. Marblehead and the people in general are fishermen or concerned in that way, which uh, source of support is now at an end. Uh, I'm I'm just going with how he wrote it, folks.
0: No, no, no that makes that makes grammatical sense for the time. He's saying he's saying that most of the people in the town are fishermen or related to the fishing industry, and uh, that source of support, that source of income, is now at an end. So the either there are no fish left in the sea, or they can't fish because there's a they fucking can't war fish going on. Because there's
1: a man of war and the the British fleet are potentially about right. Many of the men are in the army and uh, the rest are out of employ, and almost every house swarms with children of these hardy temperate men. Their situation is miserable. The streets and roads are filled with poor little boys and girls who are forced to beg of all they see. The women are lazy and of consequence dirty creatures.
0: Jesus <laughs> Okay, it's because they're lazy. I get it. Yeah, yeah. Fucking rich lazy fuck. women. Okay, keep going.
1: Dirty lazy women. <laughs> One remarkable object of charity here was a little boy whose left arm was shriveled up and dead, and his legs were contracted and folded up like a tailor's.
0: Like crisscross <laughs> applesauce or cross legged. Like, that's how a tailor sits to serve.
1: I gotcha. Uh, and of no strength, this emaciated creature would move in an odd manner with the assistance of his right hand into the middle of the road before your horse, and would beg in a most moving manner, and you must give him something or drive over him. I do not ever want to see such another place.
0: Wow we looked this up and around about that time there were about 400 widows and 800 orphaned children swarming around this town which is a lot of people who who were just destitute with no way to support themselves
1: a lot of the men uh, i think just left town they joined the military and I, i believe we were reading that this was kind of the start of the american navy actually mm,
0: because they were so good at ships.
1: Right. And in, in fact, the folks who helped Washington cross the Delaware were from Marblehead.
0: Right. Great at ships. Not so great at like <laughs> Familiar at being right at helping their fucking families survive. Yeah. Okay, Jesus. And also just the image of that mm. poor disabled boy begging in the middle of the street, it makes me think of stories I've heard of beggars on the streets of India.
1: And we, we saw some stuff like that in Egypt. that's true you know in in some of the the, the areas around Giza right um, you know we we read that this might be a thing, but it was really limited in our experience mostly around the heavy tourist places right.
0: We, by seventeen hundred standards, are extremely rich, and, you know, it's this weird, right, like, what can you do when there are hundreds of poor people in a situation, and you're noticing how they're trying to survive.
1: And it's a picture you don't hear about in the colonies. Right, like... You know, yeah. all the hardship was in the 1600s, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. You, you had people who were starving back then. But generally, the narrative that you hear by the late 1700s is we've got you know these booming merchant towns, yeah, and like everybody's you know doing really well. So it's a stark contrast to hear this town that's in you know third world conditions. Nobody has a job; they're orphans and uh, widows, and everything's terrible except uh, the buildings.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the buildings were pretty nice because they used to be in a better way, but the war sort of devastated this town. The journal ends a couple of days after this entry on the 25th of October in 1775, but that was not the end of Enyon Williams' journey through the Revolutionary War. He uh, eventually achieved the rank of major in the Continental Army by 1776. I think mostly because he was privileged and super connected to all of these high-ranking officers who were already in the Revolutionary Army. Maybe he saw some combat, but the records that we have of Enyan's participation in the war are mostly about supplies. Like, he was kind of the person who made sure that the soldiers had enough supplies at their campsite or in their barracks
1: yeah it makes sense he's the son of a merchant uh, he has some exposure to business and trade so they'd get into town and he'd seek out merchants and be like yo we need shoes if we don't get <laughs> shoes this whole thing's gonna fall apart right which i still think is code for prostitutes uh, <laughs> What? <laughs> I, I grew up this? near Hanover, Pennsylvania. And the, growing up, you heard this story about how when the Continental Army came through Hanover, they stopped in town and got shoes because Hanover Shoes is like a big thing. But as you go down like the big streets in Hanover, there are these beautiful, beautiful buildings. And I heard later, and I should totally look this up before I say it in a podcast, but I'm not going to. Uh, (laughs) I heard that these were all houses of prostitution. And the reason that the army went to Hanover, Pennsylvania was Was because
0: we had some real pretty sex workers there. Yeah. Well, Uh, you know.
1: Germans. Germans were of a different class back then.
0: Oh, pretty German ladies. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, why not? You know what? They obviously did very well out of the deal if they were making themselves some beautiful houses in Hanover that still exist.
1: Yeah. I think they're all law firms now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I could make so many jokes. Okay. (laughs) You can just imagine them all, though. I don't think I need to say them out loud. Um, So... um, I'm not 100% sure what Edward Williams's involvement in the Revolutionary War was at this stage. So if we're thinking 1775, 1776, there's no record of him going on a tour the same way that Inyan did. However, I have to assume that he also fought or at least joined the military at this stage because in January 1776 at the Arch street quakers monthly meeting there was a testimony which was recorded in the meeting minutes it says edward williams and enion williams of this city having been educated in religious profession with us the people called quakers but contrary to our religious principles have in this time of commotion associated with others in training to learn the warlike exercises for which it became our concern to treat with each of them. But our labors of love not prevailing, and they still appearing unconvinced of the rectitude of our peaceable testimony against war, we think it incumbent on us to declare that by their deviation herein, they have excluded themselves from being members of our religious society until from a just sense of their outgoing, they shall condemn the same to the satisfaction of this meeting." which that each of them may be enabled to do through the assistance of divine grace, is our desire for them. Uh, You might remember that just before Enyan left on his journey northward, the Quakers were saying that, you know, they have to stop being in the war. And a few months later, when they clearly have no intention of stopping their military exercises and joining the army and fighting the British, the Quakers say, all right, we're going to kick you out of the church. And they did. But, of course, at the end of this little proclamation, they do give them a way of rejoining the church. And they make that very clear, this path. You know, you just have to come back to the church and say that you condemn your past behavior. And uh, we hope that you'll do that at some point and we'll let you back in.
1: Disowned at the same time as Edward and Enion were several other arch street Quakers who chose to serve in the Revolutionary War. Uh, several of which joined the Free Quakers, which uh, is sort of synonymous with the Fighting Quakers or Wet Quakers. I don't know why they're called Wet Quakers. Yeah, uh, it's but, weird,
0: right? So, yeah. like, they didn't call the other Quakers Dry Quakers. No. So, so what? Oh, maybe they got drunk. Oh, that's well. I think all Quakers drank a little. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, so what does that mean? What is a Free Quaker, aka Fighting Quaker, aka Wet Quaker? Uh,
1: they were Quaker, except that they also like to fight the British. <laughs> You know... Religion is funny. uh,
0: When I was researching this whole story, I kept thinking, it is impossible to create a utopia according to your principles for more than a single generation. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. So, William Penn comes to America and he sets up this society which is like... Supposed to adhere to Quaker principles. You know, everyone who comes here agrees that violence is bad and they shouldn't be violent and they feel really bad if they do anything violent. And then the sons of the youngest people from that generation who came to Philadelphia to be nonviolent are already engaging in a fucking war. And they are like, you know what, yeah, mom, dad, your religion is great, but I'm not cool with the one thing which actually was probably the most important part of your religion, (laughs) which is, like, peace, totally peaceable in every way.
1: You see what your peace got us, dad.
0: Yeah, it just... Because those kids never knew the chaos of Britain that fomented the Quaker movement in the first place. And so they didn't really know why their parents had made those choices and they just went back to the things that the parents were running from. I mean, there's like just a part of me that reflects on this and thinks about, for instance, vaccinations. You know, we (laughs) achieve the complete eradication of an illness in a country through vaccination and then nobody gets that disease for a generation and then the next generation is like, How bad could that disease have possibly been? I don't remember it. I don't think I need vaccinations. And the next thing you know, the disease is coming back. Or, you know, it makes me think of if we were to achieve a completely equal sort of utopian socialist society, it would probably last a single generation before some people were like, what's the issue with competition? I don't understand why you can't have hierarchies in society and and I should probably be at the top. And... Uh, I mean, I
1: I could talk about how my grandfather was helping to kill fucking Nazis. Sure, uh,
0: (laughs) yes. And And then a generation uh, or two generations later, we have people proudly calling themselves Nazis and fascists and racists.
1: Other people just kind of shrugging like that's okay because they just forget so easily about what it is that the folks who... One came th- together to make the country what it is that we live in, mm-hmm. uh, uh, fought for.
0: Right. So I just, yeah. Or, this is, or
1: didn't fight for. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or fought for by In the refusing, Quaker sense. Yeah. They were fighting <laughs> against fighting by yeah. refusing to fight. Uh-huh. It's just something that is like a meditation on human nature, I think, which might be um, interesting for us to think on in this moment in history. There were a lot of. Of wet Quakers, though, I think as we were researching this morning, we were looking into this a little more deeply and sort of discovered that actually the philosophy of complete pacifism was not necessarily there right at the beginning of Quakerism, right?
1: Right. There are some stories from uh, actually out of Rhode Island where some Quakers... In the 1600s, so earlier settlers were talking about how they actually did have to kind of pick up arms in defense of themselves because they're having some trouble with the native population. Sort of the the narrative that they told about this was this was a result of the way that England was forcing themselves on the land of the natives. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were kicking them out. Uh, I
0: mean, there's like arguments there for like, All colonialism is inherently violent.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and this is in contrast to, not too much later, but William Penn coming in and being like, hey, let's just work together and I'll buy the land off of you.
0: Right. Let's have Um, a peaceful treaty with the Native Americans instead of just planting the flag.
1: Yeah. So... In this area, they sort of hand wave around the idea that, well, just because we're taking up arms doesn't mean we're necessarily using them, but it would be irresponsible Mm -hmm. um, to not at least put on a show of force, given what's been going on around us. Right. And it's not my fault. Uh, I'm here on my own agenda but this is england's colony right and it's not, i it's
0: not a quaker colony specifically it's just quakers in amongst the british yes yeah and also i think at this point in the 1600s quakerism was so new that the whole complete non-violence even if someone is hacking your arm off idea was almost too radical for those early Quakers. And then as the religion became uh, more mature and more supported by numbers, they kind of started taking this more radical position of no resistance even. Mm -hmm. Um, However, the Rhode Island Quakers, who had already kind of established that their philosophy of Quakerism included being able to defend yourself, Totally had this reputation amongst the rest of the Quake community on the East Coast of America as already being like fighting wet Quakers. (laughs) (laughs) So there's this very funny story which I kind of love. I don't know if it's true because it's from one of these terrible 19th century histories.
1: 19th century history is nonsense. (laughs) Uh, in in Just to interject, when we were doing a little bit of pre-research today, oh my God. we found something written in the 19th century. Uh, actually, something written in the 20th century reflecting on something written in the 19th century that seemed to claim that Enion Williams was a, quote, half-breed. Yeah. And that Daniel Williams was a, quote, squaw man. Who
0: had married a Native American woman. It's absolute bullshit. We looked at (laughs) Jane Oldman's genealogy and it just goes straight back to England.
1: But somebody in the 1940s made the mistake of using 19th century history Mm -hmm. to to make a point. Anyway.
0: Anyway, anyway. So uh, this one has nothing to do with any of the Williamses or anything. It just is a story about Rhode Island Quakers that I love. When the British Army had possession of Philadelphia, a committee of three of the leading men of the Society of Friends had permission to go to the headquarters of General Washington. This would have been in Valley Forge, because when the British army occupied Philadelphia, Washington's army was out in Valley Forge, being trained on how not to ship where they eat by Baron von Steuben. So, where was I? They went to the headquarters of General Washington relative to some matters of inconvenience of some of their brethren within Washington's command. The general listened to them with his usual courtesy and wisdom, but could not determine the business till the next day. In the meantime, he told them he would put them under the protection of an officer of their own society, and thereupon sent for General Nathaniel Green, who, incidentally, I think was important enough to also get his portrait painted by either Charles Wilson Peel or Trumbull, I can't remember which Mm -hmm. one. And when he arrived in full uniform, he introduced the friends to each other. After a little silence friend james pemberton turned slowly to general green and said dost thou profess to be one of our persuasion oh yes said the general i was so educated the committee looked at each other and upon the general's sword when one of them said <clears throat> may i ask general green what part of our land thou wast born and brought up in oh yes yes replied green i'm from rhode island oh, oh rejoined oh, more than oh. one of them yes yes a rhode island quaker yes friend green we are satisfied with thy explanation and will accept of thy kind offer green <laughs> betrayed a momentary flush of disconcertion At which it was said, Washington's countenance half-smiled at the Rhode Island Quaker. (laughs) 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 I love this story so much, he like made Washington smirk. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's probably not true, they probably made it up in the 19th century, who knows.
1: Just to round this all out, let's skip ahead and follow the story of Enion Williams through. Uh, so, we're now in 1817, more than 20 years after the death of his father, Daniel, and 42 years after he was disunited. Enion uh, surprisingly applied to rejoin the Society of Friends by repenting his involvement in the war.
0: There is a beautiful letter, which is preserved because the Quakers kept everything and wrote everything down. And it's in this gorgeous handwriting, I assume enion williams wrote it himself and this is the letter in full
1: to the monthly meeting of friends of philadelphia in the year 1776 i excluded myself from the membership of the society of friends by training in the militia for the purpose of war my mind has become impressed with the belief that christianity is directly opposed to that warfare which has the destruction of our fellow beings for its object I condemn my conduct, which was the cause of my exclusion from the society, and I approve of the discipline which was supported in my case. Believing now that my mind is fully sensible of the peaceable principles of Christianity and of my intention to conform thereunto, as well as of the consistency of the discipline of the society of friends therewith, I therefore feel a desire to become reunited to the meeting and to be in full membership with the society of friends. Enyan Williams, 11th Month, Sixth day, 1817.
0: So, there we go. He condemns his conduct. He regrets having fought in the war. I sort of wonder if he did regret it. Because, I don't know, did he just want to rejoin the church? It's it's a weird thing, right? It's like, how do you know that someone is being...
1: It's not uncommon even today for people who, as they get older, fall back into some of the communities that they had left in their youth.
0: That's true, yeah. Well, the Quakers did vet his intentions to some degree. They took a couple of months after this letter was presented to them and sent friends over to his house to talk with him and make sure that he was 100% genuine in his contrition and ready to join the friends again. And a couple of months later, in early 1818, he was accepted back into the friends but then when he was 75 years old right so this would have been in 1827 Enion Williams once again became involved in challenging the Quaker status quo. There was a huge schism in Quakerism in 1827. There was a guy called Hicks who wanted a kind of more universalist, liberal idea of Quakers. And uh, he led a bunch of Quakers out of the church in what's called the Great Separation between the Hicksite Quakers and the Orthodox Quakers. And uh, Enion Williams went with the Hicksites. He decided that the Quaker church needed some kind of reformation and split off from the main Quaker church. And after all of that, Enyon died in 1830, so a couple of years after this big split in the Quaker church. So, you know, he was sort of rabble-rousing and making waves right to the end.
1: <laughs> uh, it's been really interesting to have this connection to... I mean, quite frankly, somebody else's roots. But knowing that Enyan was what, like, eighteen, twenty years old when Daniel purchased this building, mm-hmm. for all we know, maybe he, he was out here checking things out. Maybe his dad was trying to get him a job as a merchant.
0: Maybe he stayed here. We have no idea. As yeah. like a young man, uh, it's possible. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, it's just incredible that through uh, the work of folks in, in libraries, and museums, and universities that we're able to research all this stuff from a keyboard and a screen
0: right we don't even have to go anywhere we just went to the met because we could not because we had to it's kind of awesome also you know interesting that our house was owned by people rich enough to get portraits done so we mm. actually have a picture of enion williams that is so rare so crazy. it's incredibly rare that's the story of enion what are we doing next week
1: Well, we still have a little bit of Daniel's story to tell. Yeah. Uh, We're going to get into some of the more unsavory aspects of being a Quaker in this time of societal change.
0: Right. Because Daniel Williams, in addition to owning a house, figured he could own people. In fact, three enslaved people But there were consequences within society and within his church. And uh, we're going to talk about that next week because it's a fascinating history of how ahead of their time Quakers really were.
1: So we've got one more episode of Revolutionary War Philadelphia, and then we're switching gears to true crime. Uh, 19th century true crime.
0: Uh-huh. The dirtiest and shadiest true crime there is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm Matt Dunphy.
0: And I'm Melissa Dunphy.
1: And you've been listening to The Boghouse. You can find out more about our show at boghouse.thehana.org. The Bog House is recorded at the Hannah Callow Hill stage in Philadelphia. Our theme music is by Up Your Cherry. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review if you like what you hear.